Hey there, it's Jason McCoy. Nelson has the day off. Today, I'd like to invite a very special guest on the show to co-host with me, my brother, Andy McCoy. He and I are going to talk about growing up in the 1980s. That's right. We're going to take a trip down memory lane. Won't you join us? I'm so glad you're here, and I can't wait to explore the science of nostalgia with you. Later in the show, we'll have a research scientist to give us more insight into what he's doing in his laboratory at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. So sit back, buckle up, and hang on as we take a trip down memory lane. Andy, thanks for agreeing to do this today, man. No worries. Again, we're talking about nostalgia today. We're taking a trip back down memory lane. I'm sure everybody does it. I just think that my brother and I may do it more than the average person. What do you think about that, Andy? Well, more than the average person, I'm not so sure, but I think we probably have a lot to be nostalgic about. Um, We had a very, maybe not uncommon uh, upbringing in in South Carolina with our, with our, with our small family that we had growing up. Um, but you know, I think we had a very interesting childhood, um, that leads to uh, a little nostalgia here and there. I mean, when I look back on my childhood, I am nostalgic about it, but I also realized that I was poor and I was anxious and I lived in kind of a, uh, repressed, suppressed part of, the world, the South, the deep South. I mean, it is kind of strange, don't you think, sometimes when you look back and you go, man, I missed that. But when you say that in mixed company, people are like, what do you miss? And I quickly say, well, I miss the smells or taste or music. They're like, oh, okay, just making sure you didn't, you didn't miss racism. Or you didn't. I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, well, what is yeah. it, what is it that you're nostalgic for? You know, like. Well, yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think I think thinking about the the context of where we grew up and when we grew up, mm-hmm. uh, there are there are there are historical potentially problems with some of the times that that people live in. You know, anytime people are nostalgic for say their childhood when they grew up in the '50s or in the '60s and segregation was still a thing and and Jim Crow was still a thing, you know, nationally we might think of that and we might say. Hey, you know that wasn't that great of a time for most everyone, but I think nostalgia is more more per- personal than that. And I mm-hmm. think that even if you have a nostalgia for your own personal experience during a time that may be problematic, you know, I still think that's a valid and uh, valid emotion that that's worth exploring um, because, as you and I both know. We grew up during the 80s when a lot of people in this country or in the United States, where we are in the, in the Deep South, like you said, uh, might think the 80s were such a wonderful time because as Reaganism was great and the economy was booming. Well, growing up as a couple of kids with uh, two parents working in cotton mills, the financial times weren't wonderful. You know, we didn't get the things that our kids get for Christmas, for example. We didn't get the things our kids get for their birthdays. I mean, I think you and I had maybe maybe four birthday parties between us. Of course, you don't miss what you don't miss what you don't have or you don't miss what you didn't have. No, either, right? No, we're nostalgic for the things we have, not what we didn't have. Do you personally ever find yourself nostalgia for things that don't make you feel good? N- no, not necessarily. I don't I want to think more about the, the 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 emotions that came along with the good times of being with family, uh, especially family for me. 
mm-hmm. as a kid. For the audience uh, who are listening today, Andy and I were together with our families for Christmas, or actually a couple of days after Christmas, he came to Wilmington. And the last night he and his family were here, we just sat around in my living room and just played different songs from the 80s, mostly country for some weird reason. Um, Andy, you want to talk about that? I think we spent two, three hours doing that. Yeah, I think we did. I think, you know, I think that had a, for me and you both, I think, had a more particularly meaning, that was a particularly more meaningful experience, I think, having that trip down memory lane, because truthfully, you know, you say, uh, oddly enough, it was country, but you and I both know the reason why it was country. Um, yeah. Because we we both were thinking about our mom. Yeah, our mom died six years ago now, I think, something like that. And uh, she, no doubt, was a country music lover, specifically those uh, country musicians from the 70s, 80s, maybe some into the 90s, but mostly the 80s, which were the formative years for both Andy and I. I was born in 72, Andy born in 76. So we not only spent most of our childhood, but I dare say spent all of our childhood, at least as far as we can remember, right, in the 80s. I personally went to elementary school, middle school, high school, and almost college in the 80s. Honestly, I didn't find myself when I was growing up um, attracted to that kind of music. In fact, I probably made fun of it or thought it was lame at the time. But that's something I notice with nostalgia as I get older, that I look back on things much more fondly. It could be something like peas and cornbread. It could be warm milk. It could be black coffee. I never found those things attractive when I was a kid, when grandpa or dad was eating or drinking those things. But today... If I have a chance to eat some milk and cornbread, I'll do it and do it with great pleasure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, growing up, I remember we would go to our grandmother's house, you know, and and in their bathroom, in her bathroom, mm-hmm. her her husband, um, her husband Bob, who, who yep. we never referred to as our granddad because no. he was he was our grandmother's second husband, but Bob had all the the shave aftershave lotions in his in his in his cabinet. I remember as I got older, I started finding out about, and this is kind of a silly thing. I started finding out about safety razors. Like, oh, I started to shave my face with a safety razor, which uh, instead of buying the five bladed, you know, transformer, I bought a safety razor with one blade and started mm-hmm. shaving with that. And I started reading about aftershave and why people used it. When I bought the aftershave, just a wave of emotions came over me because Gosh, this was just like going back to my grandmother's, my grandmother and her husband Bob's uh, bathroom when I was six years old, um, and and could smell all those smells. And, 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 and now, when I shave I skin and, and I put this aftershave on, it actually cools and tones my skin. It, it I, feel, I feel a, I feel a connection to to my childhood in a very positive way because. Even though that's an innocuous kind of memory, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing positive, nothing negative about it. Right. It's just a memory of a simpler, a simpler, more innocent time for me personally yeah. that allows for me to have a very calming, very positive outlook on life because it's just something that is very safe, is yeah. what I would say. That's very interesting. I mean, you, you bring up the fact that it was really Bob, our let's let's call him step grandpa that we always called bob that was kind of odd in that he didn't talk very much he was kind of a quiet guy my grandmother basically dominated him he just went to work came home and basically did what she told him to do so we didn't really have a relationship with him right again 
kind of neutral, didn't like him or dislike him. And yet here you are saying something that Bob did or something that Bob owned um, is a trigger now for you. And it, and it doesn't necessarily make you think of him or anything he did or said. It just kind of takes you back to being that age, maybe. Yeah, it uh, just takes me back being in that house. Exactly. It takes you back to the experiences that, yeah. you ha- that I had. And, and I think that's a big key to nostalgia is the experiences you have. I mean, what what brings you back and what makes you feel feel positive? I, I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't like the idea of, of negative nostalgia or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. That that is at dark the nostalgia of yeah. something or dark nostalgia like, hey, I like the 50s because that's when fill in terrible. Yeah, it was OK to be terrible next, or. Or I like I like the idea of the '40s or whatever because of fill in the blank of something that could be terribly construed that why I would like it that way. But but for me, nostalgia again, like I said, nostalgia is more personal to me mm-hmm. as opposed to this 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 kind of idea of a group think. Or you have a national nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to um, be complicit. I don't want to reinforce this idea. But really quickly, I do think maybe it's possible that sometimes when people engage in national nostalgia nationalism whatever it is i'm not sure that they are even thinking about it carefully enough right like they're saying i'm interested in the good old days maybe not because they like the fact that racism was more acceptable and that um disenfranchising whole groups of people particularly people of color and women was okay but um through their kind of strange filter um, they're maybe subtracting out all the bad stuff. They're not really giving a lot of thought. They're they're kind of being selfish in a way. They're not giving a lot of thought to how bad it was. Like when, when our grandpa would take a trip down memory lane, I remember him saying, man, I remember the good old days. And I used to think, I never really called him out on it, but I used to think, what, 1950s? That was terrible for whole groups of people. And he never talked about it that way, right? He never said, well, the reason I'm nostalgic for the 50s is because of the way you could treat your group A or group B and get away with it. No, right. he was just like, I'm nostalgic for the 1950s. It seems simpler, well, less I, complicated. I'll, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's also because youth is youth is fleeting too, you know. And I think I think nostalgia has a lot to do with a personal nostalgia. Anyways, it has to do with with being able to think about your youth as well. You know, our granddad was born in 1930. Mm-hmm. So for him to have nostalgia for the forties, the late forties, early fifties, before our mom was born, really it kind of makes sense. Yeah. You know, because truthfully, when you look back now in the lens of history and you think, gosh, the 1940s and the 1950s, you know, gosh, there was, there was the, the depression didn't end until world, world war two. And so, you know, our granddad lived straight through that. And a lot of the, a lot of Gen X grandparents that, that you and I are squarely in Generation X, a lot of people whose parents and grandparents grew up in the 30s and 40s, they lived through all of those terrible times. And truthfully, they, if, you know, they may think fondly on those things. And, you know, our, our granddad, specifically to him, he thought about those things. He thought they were the good days. And to your point of, gosh, how could that be the good day? Mm-hmm. He worked in a, on a farm for a dollar a day yeah. when he was, when he was, you know, a teenager. Yeah. So, so how could that even be good for him? Right. Yeah. Not just good times. Yeah. Not just exactly. Not just was it from our perspective, a bad time, just historically, politically, right. Specifically for people of right. color, women, um, but also for 
for people like him, very working class, if not poor. I mean, a dollar a day, even back in the 1940s, is, is a horrible, horrible rate, particularly if you're working in a sawmill like he was. Right, or walk, or as he always said, walking behind a mule for a dollar a day, yeah. plowing fields as well, because our granddad did more. I never knew. Yeah, he was doing more there. menial, more more hand, hands-on work. I, I never unskilled. They call it labor, but of yeah. course, I always find that funny too, because unskilled um, has a lot of different meanings. I, I can't do a lot of unskilled things. I can't walk behind a mule and keep my my row straight, and I can't fix a carburetor on an old lawnmower like my granddad could. Hell, I can barely change the light bulb without shocking myself. Right. And I think that's one thing, you know, like nostalgia, generically, we're talking about it. But what about you? What do you think? What's the what is one of those nostalgic things that you think about? As, you know, and you could even say we, we've talked a lot. We've said mm -hmm. our granddad's name a lot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or we've said our granddad, uh, our, our, our biological grandfather, John, John Hodge. Um, what's one of those things that you would conjure up about him that you would you would share with your listeners? Well, <clears throat> again, I think just the. The way he talked about food in particular uh, and the sort of advice he had about, you know, the importance of everything that goes in my mouth, boy, is going to be the best quality. But I don't give a shit about what I wear. He used to say that. And I thought it was kind of funny. But again, as he got older and I got older, I should say how I got older, I started to realize more and more what he meant by that. So to this day, I'm 51 years old now and I, I feel the same way. I went yesterday to, to the grocery store and what did I do? I picked up the most expensive filet I could for CC and I got Ollie a sirloin cause he doesn't really care that much, but you know, I'm not at all ashamed of it. I'm going to, going to cook that thing on the grill on the charcoal grill today. And CC and I are going to have a barely cooked uh, filet. And I'm going to think about pop, not that he ate filets or that he ate them raw, but that if he were going to have a hamburger, he would prefer one being cut up from a butcher in town. Right. And if it cost, $5 a pound back then, which would have been probably $20 today. That was fine because it was quality. Same way with his eggs in the morning. Same way with, you know, whatever it is he was putting in his mouth. He wanted to grow it himself. He wanted to know it was of the utmost quality, and it was nutritious, and it tasted good. Um, but when it came to clothes, he could care less, right? I'm the same way now, I find. People ask me sometimes, they're like, how long have you had that shirt, dude? I think I remember you wearing that shirt you know, 25 years ago. Yeah, because I don't give a damn. So that that comes to my mind, definitely comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, he was, he was also, because I guess growing up through the Depression, he was also very particular about wasting. Uh, he was particular about cleaning your plate, being resourceful, being careful about throwing things away that might be of some value later. Uh, I find that that's definitely inside me, either genetically and or environmentally. I do the same thing. I can't, I can't go on a walk with my family without rumbling through someone's yard waste, right? The other day, I'm drive, walking by with the dogs and the kids, and I'm like, ooh, what's this pile? And my neighbors had a couple of old... <laughs> a couple <laughs> of old... buried treasures. Yeah, a couple of old shelves, right? And I just started immediately thinking what I could do with those shelves. Where could I put them? Could I put them in my home office? Could I take them to school? Could I give them to somebody? Right. Could I refinish them? Right. And then they also had a mirror. And I was like, ooh, that mirror, I could, I could clean that up and put it in Oliver's room. He'd have a mirror like Cece. Yeah, That's exactly just, the way Grandpa was or Papa. It's funny how now, you, now we, have to have a, we have to have actual mass campaigns for reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah. When that was just, when that was just kind of second, second nature to, 
to, to our grandfather and his generation, probably, you know, the, the idea of just, I mean, gosh, he, you still have, I know you still have furniture that you found on the side of the road that you refinished and, 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 st- <laughs> and use, oh, use on a daily basis. 100%. Um, uh, similarly, I still have furniture that he, he gave me that heck he found on the side of the road from, he probably found it on the side of the road. I don't mm-hmm. know that he bought it. Um, but yeah, he, he definitely was a, fr- he was frugal, uh, in, in almost every, every facet mm-hmm. of his life. Um, but he, he was never afraid to work, work hard for what he had. And he was never afraid to, he would, he would pay what it costs whenever it came to, to food. He was happy, happy yeah. to pay what it costs for food, but he, he, he would, he, if he could buy a pair of shoes from someone for 50 cents, he sure would. Yeah. Um, and yeah. not to turn this into a, you know, let's, let's, um, uh, focus too much on this episode about our grandpa who was an amazing man. And I don't, I don't mind doing it per se, but I do want to say one more thing about him. Um, do you ever think as nostalgic as he was about all kinds of things, friends, family, especially as he got older and older, he wanted me to look people up that came to his mind that maybe he hadn't thought about or had remembered in a while on my, yeah. my computer machine. He used to call my phone, my little computer. He wanted me to look it up on that computer. He meant the internet and he wanted me to find people and find numbers and try to help him get in touch with them. But one thing he didn't do ever. And I, I know you know, this is that he didn't get too sentimentally attached to anything. Right? Like, he, he he wasn't a pack rat in that sense. Like, he had a lot of stuff, don't get me wrong. He had a barn full of junk. He, he considered himself a junk man like, you know, Fred Samper from Sanford and Son. But he didn't get real sentimental. He would, he would sell anything, no matter how long he had it, no matter what his relationship was with it, right? Mom used to joke about, not really joke, she used to be upset about a few things that Papa had borrowed air quotes from her right yeah. the, the yeah. handle on a victro on an old victrola that she had he wanted to borrow yep and he ended up selling that probably with an old victrola that didn't have one and he and a chainsaw i think my dad had he wanted to borrow it and before you know it it's gone it's gone it's gone uh, in fact there still is no uh, handle for that victrola that i can see within my lines line of sight right so yeah now. you still have it right um, it's i have it yeah, yeah. and I it is it. sentimental to you and you probably you couldn't put a price tag on it I fa- fairly, but I mean, at the same time, it's a piece of furniture at, at the end of the day because it's it's a, it's an old phonograph uh, type machine, uh, but it's a piece of furniture that that was from around a hundred years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but would I sell it? No, prob- no. probably not. But not for the were, same price, Papa would. Not for the same price, he no. would have. No, no. no. I, uh, to steal a quote from from people today, <laughs> I know what I have. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and our granddad, he knew what he had too, but he was happy to, like you said, he was happy to let it go. And that's an interesting thing because, because nostalgia, you normally think of having emotions toward those things and where our granddad, he, he really didn't, he was really pretty mentally healthy when it came to, to viewing the past. Right. Never, that sentimentality you know, wasn't really the same. Right. Even though he looked back at the past fondly, I don't think he would have I don't think he would have traded it or gone back to it. And I think that's something that that's an interesting kind of kind of dynamic with nostalgia as well that, you know, and this is where I think it can get dark, right? Yeah. That would you go back? People try to, when they're trying to create, recreate the conditions of the past, which, which, you know, I've long since, well, first of all, to answer your question, no, I would never go back. Mm-hmm. I would never go back because I, I fully believe. And, and, and I, and I, I would, I would say this was from a, I heard this from a from a teacher 
uh, I think we both had him in, in Atlanta, not at not Atlanta, but at Piedmont Technical College. Um, gosh, I cannot remember his name now. He taught, he taught English. He had a beard. Chuck McDonald? Um, yes, yes. Chuck he McDonald. Always, I remember Chuck McDonald. And he always mentioned, he always mentioned, in, in, at least in my class, he talked about how there's no better time to be alive than right now. Absolutely. And he, he always talked about how, you know, he would never go back in time. And he was a product of the 60s. You know, he grew up during the hippie era. And mm -hmm. I could totally envision that guy being a hippie, right? Mm -hmm. I remembered his face, but I couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Because he looked a little like Peter Griffin, if I recall. Uh, yeah, kind mm -hmm. of, but with a beard. Yeah. But with a beard. and um, Very smart and he, guy, yeah. He's a wonderful, wonderful instructor of, of English literature. Mm -hmm. And and I, I've always taken that forward with me. And that's something that even I've become, I guess maybe I've become a little nostalgic about that little tidbit on nostalgia that, that would I go back? No, I would not, because I think now is a better time than has ever existed in human history. I don't think, you know, yeah, do we have our challenges as a species? Sure, but would I go back? No, I don't. Yeah, you're not solving any back. of those challenges by going back, most likely. No, no, you're creating a whole new set of problems yeah. by going back because the past is riddled with problems. And let's let's face it, I mean, most nostalgic researchers will remind us all that we can't go back. <laughs> like, one thing's right. for certain about life, with all species, we move we change, right? It's, it's right. And let's see one other thing. I guess um, uh, I was going to ask you uh, related to, you know, going back the way we do it, the way most people probably do it. Uh, that sort of quaint go back because we're triggered by smell, or triggered by sound, triggered by a toy or a food item. It's a way for me, at least, and I think for many to go back in a controlled way, to go back in a way where you can, again, subtract out all the bad stuff, right? Like you have right. total control over the past. you got no control over the future, little control over the present, but man, you've got total control over the past, at least when it comes to recollecting it, right? And I imagine that a relatively normal brain, a person without any serious psychological trauma, might be better equipped to go back and think about the more positive stuff. Maybe that's one of the things that makes it hard for people with depression is that when they go back down memory lane, they're flooded with all the bad moments as well. That was at least it seemed like the case with mom. I was gonna say I do too. I I, I tend to I tend to start really positive and then occasionally dip <laughs> dip a toe into some more dark uh, more darker. Then you're like I'm out. Uh, I'm going back to the and present. Then, and then and then I think to myself, well, but well, not necessarily. It depends on it depends on what it is. Like around the around the time of the year when it was when she was born or when she passed away, you know, I think I probably have a little darker nostalgia because mm -hmm. I start thinking about her, obviously for, for obvious reasons, because it's around her birthday or her death day. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think about positive things and then it starts to, because as you know, I was there with her when she passed mm -hmm. and, and, and so I start thinking about that, but then, and then I start thinking about positive things and I start thinking about, I start, I do get back to the, to the, to the, to the, to the to, to the current time because I start thinking about how much she would have loved to see her grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And I think about how much she'd love I to share wistful. these new experiences. Right. Exactly. You get, you get somewhat wistful for things that can't be. And, mm -hmm. and, and then that's, that's okay because I can actually turn that to a positive in my head. And I think, um, but yeah, mom was, she was definitely, uh, she cornered the market on, on dark nostalgia, I think. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think anyone can do that, but the 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 key there is trying to turn that into a positive that that 
that gives you that that pleasant memory as opposed to a negative one. Yeah, um, it does raise an interesting academic question as to whether or not you can predict and or control um, people's emotions and therefore maybe some of their mood states and their mental health using nostalgia as kind of a technique or a tool. I mean, we've got a guest coming on later in the show named Jeff Green from um, Virginia Commonwealth University. He's a social psychologist, not a clinical psychologist, but I might ask him if he's familiar with any research that looks at nostalgia as a therapeutic tool. I can certainly see the benefit of that potentially because in my own life, it certainly is a way to make me at least feel good for a few moments, if not for the rest of the day, if I get into the right kind of mindset. Is there anything you do, Andy, that um, makes you purposely take more trips down memory lane? For, uh, the reason I ask that is I've got a couple of websites that I hit, Gen X, uh, growing up in, in Generation X, growing up in the 80s, and I love just looking at this website every couple of days and reading people's quotes from the 80s, reading old adverts, yeah. looking at old toys, hearing yeah. other people talk about the things they miss. What about you? Anything you yeah. do or anything um, you collect? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I... I mean, I still have all of my baseball cards uh, from when I was a kid. So there's a couple things. No, I'll okay. get into both of them just, just briefly. Mm -hmm. uh, I still have all the baseball cards I, I had as a kid. And, uh, or not, maybe not all of them, yeah. uh, but a good number of them. And again, most of these were from the 80s, right? Most all of them are from the yep. 80s. May, yep. Just a smattering from the early 90s, yep. but mostly from the 80s. Um, every now and then I'll look at those, those cards and, and think to myself, gosh, why didn't I keep these in better condition? But then I also remember that they were um, mass produced and they're probably not worth that much. Anyways. Yeah. They probably weren't the, the um, mint condition to begin with. Yeah. Now, because we, 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 we used our cards. We, 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 we constantly traded them and did things like that. So, right. but I, I'll, I'll look at those cards and they'll, they'll, they'll take me back to the time when, when baseball was the most important thing in my life. And, and I loved playing and I loved watching and I loved everything about, about baseball cards. Mm -hmm. And and so that, and then surprisingly enough, we kind of it kind of circles it back around to to when we were talking earlier about Chris uh, around right after Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, every so often, uh, when I'm driving to work, um, I'll I'll put on I'll put on country country music and and I'll and I'll deliberately play the '80s and '90s station on Sirius XM and 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 it 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 is a walk down memory lane for me just in those 30 minutes i'm driving to work you know just it's about 30 minutes from my house to my to my work and and those moments whenever i feel you know like i, I want to feel kind of happy or i feel one i want to think especially if i want to think about our mom right mm -hmm. it it gets me into that mo yeah just throw a little travis tritt or george Strait or clint black and you're there <sighs> a little randy travis randy yeah, travis and, absolutely and it's, especially randy travis that was a mom's man uh, she loves Randy Travis, and so so that that'll get me, it'll get me going. And and you know and and you know when we talk about dark nostalgia, you know it's one thing to get dark and to feel bad, but it's another thing to have that sentimental nostalgia that I have for for our mom because it's even thinking about her death, it's never a bad thing, even though even though it's painful, even though it's sad, even though it makes me want to cry, even all these years later, it's still a good emotion for me. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not ashamed to think to myself that seven years on since she passed, it can still make me cry to think about her. Right. Because that means she's still with me and it still means, it means she's still a part of my life. And Absolutely. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Well, let's take a moment on that note, man, have a little break. And when we come back, let's do a little thing I'm calling rapid fire. Sure. Let's do it. 
And we're back. You're listening to Put Them on the Couch. Today, I've got a co-host, a very special co-host, uh, my brother Andy. Both of us grew up in the 1980s, so we're taking a look at nostalgia. So, Andy, uh, the show is called Put Them on the Couch. For those that don't know, uh, I'm not even sure if my brother Andy knows, it's kind of a play on uh, words where we kind of adopt from Freud this idea of putting people, putting things, putting... Uh, experiences on the couch and analyzing them, talking about them, interpreting them. But it's just a metaphor. The truth is, um, I don't actually think what we're doing today has anything to do with Freud's theory, but nostalgia, as it were, does kind of remind me of what Freud called free association, right? Where he would ask a question or give a one-word prompt, and then somebody would say what was the first thing on the top of their mind. So I want to do that with you, if you would. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, so if I say... um, you know, from your childhood, what either stands out most or what what sort of exemplifies your childhood smell? Oh, smell? Yeah. Man. Okay, so uh, bread, Greenville, Greenville Street Elementary School bread. Really? Bread baking in the, in the cafeteria. So walking in, or you can smell it from the hall probably? You could smell it in that. And, and going to lunch, you remember walking down those hallways, those wooden hallways to the yep. lunchroom down at the end? Yeah, yeah, that, that bread, I can remember that smell. I wouldn't. I don't even know if I know that smell anymore, but that that is a smell that is that is kind of tattooed on my brain. For me, it's the the wood heater. It's it's like yeah. kind of a mix yeah. of cigarette smoke and and oak or pine and yeah, it's maybe even a little bacon. I remember that I used to go to my friend, your friend too, Luke Wren's house. Shout out to Luke if you're listening, man. Uh, Luke used to love. The way our house smelled and i used to be so embarrassed because it was cigarette smoke Smoking. it was a wood heater right i thought yeah. it was yeah. i thought it was terrible but, but luke i remember him saying man i love the way you smell i love the way your house smells it smells like like warm it smells like bacon as i think back on my childhood i can smell i can think about that smell and it actually i don't know it, it harken heart harkens me back to yeah sort of a cozy simple warm both psychologically and physical time being around the wood heater being around the the stove that warmed our little seven eight hundred square foot house yeah there's a lot of memories around that wood stove mm-hmm. so i could i could i can see that i can mm-hmm. I, you know I, I still we have a fireplace in the house and i occasionally burn some wood for yep. my kids and and, <clears throat> and that that smell does right it doesn't trigger me because i guess maybe maybe i still because i still burn wood here and yeah. there um, but, but you think you're creating your own probably for your family, for your kids? Hopefully so. Yeah. Hopefully so. All I have is a little uh, gas insert, and I have to admit, man, I would prefer having the wood. I'll ask you, would, wood stove. would you uh, trade the trade it for gas, for the convenience mm-hmm. and the cleanliness of gas? No. I, yeah. When I bought this when I bought this house, one of the things the realtor told me, she said, oh, they have the fireplace. It can be converted to, to gas. They've like, never burned a fire in there. And I and I thought to myself, no, that you. thing's getting a fire in it this winter. Yeah. And sure sure enough, we I burned I burn wood in it. And then, you know, I live in Georgia. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of days where we, and, and in middle Georgia. So there's not a lot of days where we have, have really cold weather, but, right. but when it comes and it does maybe, maybe, you know, a week's worth a year, we'll burn, I'll burn a little wood for my kids and, and just to have a little fire in the house just so right. they can experience it. So yeah, no, I wouldn't trade it. All right. Here's another one is sim- similar to smell. Um, a food item can be any food item. Food item. Yeah. Gosh. So, so many come to mind immediately, um, but 
man, probably lemon pie. Our, our grandmother's lemon pie, man. That's that one's and again, not our hard. not our actual grandmother this time. This is my grandpa's yeah, second wife. As uh, close as you could be to a grandmother. Yeah, though. Mom A. You know that. Man, she her lemon pie was amazing. Almost everything she made. I, I could I could have you replaced that with rice that she made, replace yeah. it with insert any food item she made. Our mom, you know, no, no. It took me a second. Mom's biscuits. Maybe those are better. Yeah. As a as an answer. You know, yeah. I mean, so many food items mm -hmm. come to mind. What do you think it is? Is it the taste that you miss? Is it for mom's biscuits? To be yeah. honest with you, I probably miss everything about them. Just the when they were hot. Yeah, you take that the way they feel. Down, the way they feel when you bite well. them, and when they're really hot, and the the warmth of the biscuit. This sounds kind of strange, yeah. and I don't know if it, other people have this experience, but I remember breathing in the heat of the biscuit. I don't know if you had that experience or if you know what I'm talking no, about. No, but I do remember the versatility of some food items, particularly those biscuits. I remember the versatility of them, dude. Like, right? Yeah. Like, I could eat them hot. I could eat them warm. I could put butter on them. I could put jelly on them. I could put spam in them. I could put, um, my God, yeah, a piece of pork chop. You could put anything we, in them. We would eat, we would, she would make biscuits with spaghetti. Absolutely. Phenomenal. Absolutely. We didn't, have garlic. We didn't grow up eating yeah. garlic bread. And then the next morning, right? If there were any left over, and there hardly ever were, uh, yep. we could just split them in half, throw a little butter on and, and, um, broil them in the uh, oven. All right. Staying with this theme of food. What about a, uh, candy item from your childhood, especially anything that's been discontinued that you long for? Ooh, I don't, I don't know if it's something that's been discontinued, but I do remember those little strawberry, uh, candies you, we used to get from the strawberry patch on the, on the main on street town on the square. Yeah. On the square. Yeah. I remember those, the little strawberry candies, they're still around. You can mm. still get those, but people associate them with old I, for whatever reason, hard candies people associate with little old ladies' purses, but but those uh, those were always good. I remember those growing yeah. up. Those I just were, remember going to the grocery store like Ingles, right? And they had a Brock's candy. Oh, the candy kiosk yeah. or big big thing, and you could go and just start like grabbing yeah, candies. And, and I'm sure and, I ate some they, of those before. Uh, yeah, I ate some of those before <laughs> before uh, they were even paid for. I'm not even sure if we ever paid for any of them. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. They, you, you would get them with like a scoop. They were the bulk. It was the yeah. bulk candy area. Yeah, yeah, they don't have those anymore. No, you've right. got to go to yeah, a novelty right. candy shop or an ice cream shop to. in Myrtle Beach or something to get yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then and then they're they're behind the counter and they're gonna have to scoop them for you and weigh yeah. them out and you're gonna pay yeah. for everything. They might as well just be buying uh, razor blades in the store at that point. <laughs> right. Uh, what else? Uh, toy, toy, uh, all Star Wars, uh, all of the Star Wars guys. Anything Star Wars, anything Star Wars. We had the little, yeah, all of them, all, every one of them, uh, and not because of how much they're worth now, but just how much fun you and I had playing with them. Yeah, mine, mine. It's kind of strange. Um, Star Wars was definitely my wheelhouse in terms of growing up. Right, I feel like I was the perfect age for Star Wars, and you were a little bit young, but you grew into loving Star Wars as much as I did. But then. Honestly, He-Man for me, I don't know why, but I was really? getting a bit older by the time He-Man oh, was. But why. I love the thought of playing with He-Man. Every time I see things, yeah. Yeah. was it the yeah. TV show, do you think? No, no, I don't think it is. I think uh, I'll just go ahead and let your listeners in on, on something. Okay. It was you scaring, scaring the absolute shit out of me with one of the characters. That's what it was. Mantana. That's it. See, you knew exactly what I was talking about. You scared the shit out of me with that guy. And I don't know. It was I don't know what it was about. No, no. You were four or five, and I was screaming, Man, Dana. Exactly. It, it was because, I think, I don't remember how it happened, but I'll embellish and just make up a story right now. Right, as, as you're like after to do. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it was, uh, you know, we had the bunk beds right? Um, at one point, and I think I was on the top bunk, 
and I was playing and you snuck into the room and had the guy in your hand and got into my face real fast and screamed and a jump scared me. Yeah. And, and it and it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. So maybe. May, yeah. In psychology, be, we call that classical emotional conditioning. I think the, the father be of behaviorism, John B. Watson, did that allegedly with a small child named little Albert. <laughs> right. He made little Albert fear things that little Albert, little kids shouldn't fear by yeah. pairing um, that that object like a, a fluffy white rabbit with a sudden surreptitious loud sound like one yeah. of his assistants like struck a metal pipe against the wall and yeah. scared little albert so from that point forward yeah. he was a little nervous around um yeah. anything white and fuzzy but just to be clear i'm not afraid of the character mantena no it was just a a situation where you scared me with the he-man yeah that i think may have may been, i maybe and, i enjoyed and, that too much and yeah i think maybe it invaded your psyche and, yeah. and now you just remember he-man really fondly but you know uh well, yeah, I mean, star wars for me uh, because I think because of our relationship mm -hmm. playing with Star Wars together when when you were the big brother and you were you were playing with your Star Wars with me because if if this had been a conversation with our younger brother I would have said and you remember these toys mask yeah mask just, just we had that connection with those little mask characters right I can appreciate both Star Wars and GI Joe for that matter because of all of yeah. the accoutrements all of the special. Um, things that would accompany the GI Joes and the Star Wars, right? You've got the, right. the 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 scene, the battle scenes, or the headquarters, or this or that, the, or the roving uh, um, vehicles. With He Man, there wasn't quite as much. You know, you had a battle cat, you had the the Skeletor's cat equivalent, you had Castle Grayskull, and a couple things, but it, it wasn't yeah. quite as much. I was going to say maybe it was the TV show, but the truth is, GI Joe had a TV show, right? And I don't. Right remember G.I. Joe's TV show as much as I do He-Man, and I didn't, I don't, like, I'm not as nostalgic for the, for the show itself, the scenes, the sound, but He-Man, man, Master of the Universe, I don't know, maybe it had those religious undertones, and I was, uh, I was predisposed to, I don't know, feeling a certain way about religion, maybe it was the muscularity of the guys, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, they were all scantily clad, maybe there's a homoerotic connection unconsciously, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's, you know, it's also just in the name, He-Man. You yeah. know, when you, in the you also have to remember in the 80s, we were being drilled in with, with machoism, manliness, things yeah. like that. Like the, the same thing that the kids today are being, being bombarded. Being fed, with, right? Like being a masculine man, an alpha man. Being masculine. Yeah. Joe Rogan alpha, talks about that a lot. Matt, Matt Walsh, all those guys that are. And it's, it's, it's very important to people for some reason. Uh, and, and even in the 80s, we were still, we were still bombarded with that nonsense and, and 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 I think having someone named He Man, like right. how much more manly can you be besides He Man? I mean, what is it? I mean, is it testosterone man? Is yeah. that what we need to have? I mean, GI Joe is a close second, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, the jingoism in GI Joe was pretty, pretty odd, uh, pretty obvious. Yeah, pretty obvious. I, I have to also say the gum inside uh, a, a pack of baseball oh, cards. They were never. Tops. It was never really that good. It was kind of no. like um, alkaline. It was cardboardy, but. I wanted to put it in my mouth. I wanted to eat it. Did you say yeah. that you had an old pack of cards relatively lately and you tried the gum or no? Yeah, no. So, <laughs> no. During co during during COVID, as if it's over, but right. a few a few years the height ago, of COVID um, at the height height of COVID, uh, I bought a I bought three packs of 1981 Fleer, which is a very ugly design right. baseball card, but it had the gum in it. Um, and it came. So you bought you these know, packs got, online somewhere. Yeah, I bought them online. They came in. They were relatively decent price at the time. 
And man, I, I was tempted. I smelled the gum. The gum was there. It smelled like it always did. Really? Had that, had that fake artificial terrible smell to it. Did it look uh, powdery? Did it have the white powder it on was, it? Oh yeah, it was white. Nice. Powdery. But it was, it was, it, it had been, it was, it, it was brittle and it was, it was. I mean, it was, was always a little brittle, right? Like you could get. Right. Cause it get, was always old and yeah. pale, right? <laughs> yeah. They had made it months in advance. And yeah. by the time we got it in South Carolina, it, you know, it, it, yeah. when you started chewing it, it didn't congeal. To, it didn't connect together like gum would do. Right. I don't know what the, the consistency. It didn't have uh, cornflakes. Maybe it just kind of. Yeah. And it was uh, more, uh, more brittle and kind of mm -hmm. broken. And, but you know what? There was nothing better than opening a pack of baseball cards and getting that gum and chewing no. it and then finding out you had a Don Mattingly in there. No, exactly. No, I, I think about the, the, the gum in those cards. I also think about uh, Big League Chew. The stringy Bigly, Bigly Chew, Chew making yeah. it, they still, you know, they still make, they that, still do. They, nice. They still have that. I didn't know if it'd be any, any good. I mean, I'm kind of like grandpa, papa, when it comes to that, I, I think that when I do try something that seems to be a remake, um, it just doesn't seem the same. And, and I didn't yeah. have the heart to tell him back in the day, it's dude, you've changed, right? Like right, your when you, you taste buds, you are a completely different person. So I know that right. if I were to get Bigly Chew right now, even if it's the exact same, um, recipe, it would probably taste different. What else do I have? Uh, I was going to ask if there's a special song that sort of reminds you of the 80s. I can think back to the songs that I loved as the, in the 80s, but I don't think there, there are any. I don't have a go-to song for mm -hmm. nostalgia on the 80s, I don't think. Go-to uh, uh, go to clothing item? Not that you go to item? it now or have it, but it's something that like epitomizes the 80s for you. Uh, ball cap, probably. You know, I think uh, wearing a baseball hat, you know, it just it's something about it that, you know, it just reminds me of being a kid and and wearing a cap and going to play baseball right. and and going to the going to the Dixie Youth baseball field yeah outside the high school oh when you say that it reminds me of those corn dogs and those uh, fries man I can smell them and taste them now absolutely especially the ketchup they use for some reason it was just better than the ketchup it, it was today. special it yeah was special. special ketchup I don't know what they I don't know what those those folks back there cooking made made it with but I, it's love I guess yeah. Uh, tight roll jeans, maybe for me, fat laces in my shoes. Oh, I know. Um, I get, I can conjure up sort of the sound, the smell and the sight of the, um, the white polish, right? The little squeegee white polish that looks like a bingo dauber and it had a oh, little yeah, yeah, felt yeah, yeah. or a little, uh, sponge on the end of it yeah, and you could yeah. press it against your shoe, your white shoes, right? Whether you had a Sahi yeah. or Nike or Reebok, and then you could just paint those things back white. Yeah. Yeah, and by I the way, it looked those. awful, but yeah, I remember I'd get them dirty or scuffed, and I could use that little dabber paint and it. paint them back white. Just paint it, yeah, just definitely. Paint them right, yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, when you say that, thinking about the heck, my parachute pants in the early eighties. Oh yeah, I remember wearing those to elementary school, having some parachute pants with with all the zippers on them. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about hammer. I'm not talking about hammer pants. No parachute. Those are, those yep. are later in the eighties. Uh, yeah, the parachute pants were tighter. They, also had those. they were tighter. Uh, parachute pants are tighter, tighter. That's right. Yeah. And then we had, we did have some hammer pants later on in the, um, later in the eighties too. Yeah, yeah. But man, you could do the members only jacket. Oh you yeah. You could do um, definitely Reebok high tops. I think everybody was wearing those back in the day. Yeah, I had a pair. I think I had a pair of pump high tops as well. Just high tops. Nice. Oh yeah, you squeeze the tongue right, the top of the yeah, tongue, and it pumps the, up the, the sides. Had the little orange basketball on the on the tongue. Yeah, and they weren't two hundred dollars like the Air Max are today either, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were expensive, but for the eighties, they were expensive. That if they were eighty bucks, that's kind of like two hundred dollars now, or mm -hmm. probably more. Who knows? I don't know the exchange rate of from the eighties to now, or what inflation would have 
would cost. But. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if fashion was at its heyday in the eighties or not. I think every generation looks back and thinks that their generation's sense of style and fashion was better than it probably was. So, um, any any friends that come to mind, or anything we used to do with friends that comes to mind? I mean, I think that's oh, the man. that's the more yeah. obvious thing that we've missed here today. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you mentioned you mentioned him. He was one of our best friends growing up. Was Luke? Yes. Luke and I used to play. We used to go to the gym beside, go to the civic center and go to the gym and play basketball for hours. Man, uh, we would go to the park beside his house and play softball, one on one softball, which random. How you play one-on-one softball? We did it. We figured a way out how to do it. Luke and I did that an awful lot. Um, we had a lot of good times playing, playing together yeah. um, all over that town. Um, and it was a privilege, right? I mean, we, we kind of take was. that for granted, yeah, we, being close to our neighbors yeah. and neighbors having children our age and people staying in their houses their entire life, right? Like we had friends that grew up with us and nobody moved. They stayed right, right there with us for the most part. Same school, same school system. I mean, occasionally people would move, but nothing like you see today. Like no one's loyal to a location or community. Heck, they can't be. They got to go where they can find work. Maybe they got to go where they can better their lives. I feel like in in large part, mom and dad were like, "Look, this is our life. This is what we have, and we're, we're going to be here till the end." And we lived right. in our house until what? You and I went to college or beyond. <laughs> um, we've been going for about forty five minutes now, but I appreciate hey. you doing this with me, Andy. And no worries, man. Thanks. Thanks so much. And, and, and love you so much. I'm proud of you. Proud of the work you're doing. I appreciate your time. And uh, it was fun taking the trip back down memory lane. Absolutely. We have to do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. We'll do it. There's plenty to talk about. Plenty to be nostalgic about. Plenty of other topics. Hey, if you or anyone else listening to this has some ideas for topics, want to be a part of the show in any way, don't forget to reach out to me at putem, P-U-T-E-M, E-M, on the couch at gmail.com and uh i check those emails every day and who knows your topic and or your um recommendation might be selected to be a part of the show coming up next we have a very special guest joining us today dr jeff green a psychology professor and director of the phd program in social psychology at virginia commonwealth university dr green earned his bachelor's degree in psychology from dartmouth college and his PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His research explores the concept of self. The studies I'm most interested in discussing with Dr. Green relate to his work that he's done in his lab on nostalgia. Dr. Green, thank you for joining me and welcome to the couch. Thank you very much. You know, lately I've been spending more time thinking about the past not sure if it's because I miss the past or maybe the people from my past who are no longer with me. Either way, my Spotify playlist is full of 80s country songs. I'm also spending <laughs> a lot of time on social media these days, especially in those Generation X groups that are popping up. I love looking at images of old toys, the ones from my childhood. I find it really pleasurable, Dr. Green. Is this what you and other scientists mean by nostalgia? That's absolutely right. Uh, uh, I think one reason might be people are, we have more past now, so maybe that's uh, a little bit of it. But yes, nostalgia is this longing for the past. It's primarily a positive emotion, uh, and it can be triggered by so many different things. Uh, and I think we're especially nostalgic for those most formative 
times of our life. I think high school and college, uh, early adulthood is a time when you've got so many things happening. Um, and uh, especially maybe the childhood, the innocence uh, part where things were were simple. We didn't have mortgages. And so the toys and uh, feel good about it. Yeah. Sounds quite adaptive, doesn't it? The, mm -hmm. the word, um, as I understand it, implies that there's something positive, at least uh, effectively, something enjoyable going on. And and even the cognitive development seems to be pretty positive. Um, has it always been that way? Have, have, have researchers always viewed um, nostalgia that way? No, you know, there's a 400-year history uh, for the research and especially for this particular term. There is, uh, it goes back to 1688, the term does. It's a combination of two Greek words. A Swiss scholar, uh, I believe in Basel, Switzerland, wrote this dissertation and um, he took the two Greek words nostos and algos. Nostos meaning a, a yearning to return and algos meaning a pain or suffering as an analgesic. Um, and so he put the two together to, and called it nostalgia. Now, unfortunately, he got a little bit wrong and uh, it took more than 400 years for us to get it right. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So Hoffer in 1688 defined nostalgia as essentially a brain disease. Uh, and this is not gonna sound terribly scientific. He said it was essentially a demonic cause caused by the continuous vibration of animal spirits through fibers of the middle brain. So oh. it, it sounds scientific, but of course it's very far from that. And I guess in some ways we see that uh, in our sort of popular culture mm -hmm. um, where something appears to be science, but it's really nonsense. Now, uh, people continued to think about this. Other people thought it was the differentiation in atmospheric uh, pressure. Um, my favorite was some military physicians uh, were looking at mercenaries. So these are folks who are traveling to different countries. Uh, basically, their job is, is soldiering. Uh, and of course, they were, they were missing home. They were homesick. Maybe they get a little bit depressed, lonely. Uh, and these physicians uh, in Switzerland uh, suggested that it was the unremitting clanging of cowbells in the Alps. Now, I've been to the Alps, and you do hear cowbells a lot, um, but uh, I, I managed to escape without serious brain damage, personally. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so this continued, and um, again, you know, not, not any real scientific research until uh, a tiny bit, maybe 80s, 90s, 2000s, but this was mostly uh, clinical psychologists. And so they, they continued to think that nostalgia was, was negative, that it was associated with loneliness, and therefore, it was kind of a dysfunctional emotion, perhaps a denial of the present and, and living in the past. You know, so if you imagine the extreme versions of what we were talking about, somebody who just is, you know, all they're doing is playing with their, their childhood toys and listening to 80s music um, rather than facing, uh, facing the present. So it wasn't until around, I think, the first... Good paper was 2006. Now, I'm a little biased because that good paper was uh, written by my ex-advisor and my ex-grad uh, school office mate from graduate school. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill uh, in the late 90s, and my, uh, my advisor and I left about the same time, and he went to the University of Southampton. And he was 
having coffee or, or walking with a clinical psychology colleague and was talking about how he missed life in Chapel Hill. We, we had a very uh, communal and social group. Uh, as you know, we social psychologists tend to actually be social. And, uh, you know, then we had all these transitions uh, to England. And the clinical colleague basically said, well, that's, that's a, a negative state. And my advisor, Constantine Sedakides, said he disagreed. He said, but I, I feel primarily good. I mean, nostalgia does have that bittersweet component, mm -hmm. but I like to think of it as two shots of happy, one shot of sad. And nice. dozens of, of studies show that, that people do sometimes report, you know, this wistfulness, missing friends, a uh, longing to return, but mostly they'll feel good. So that inspired him to start start the research to try to understand how, how do people think of nostalgia? How often do they experience it, um, et cetera. And so, you know, less than 20 years later, there's been this explosion of research, uh, particularly in his lab. And um, and then maybe half a dozen years after his the first few papers, I went to him saying, listen, I'm, I think I'm 99th percentile personally on trait nostalgia. So, uh, you know, let me in. Um, and now we've got probably a dozen papers together and probably three or four or five of my graduate students also have um, been working in nostalgia. Interesting. Now you said trait uh, nostalgia. Is there a measure for that? Is there a survey or some sort of assessment that one could take to find out how nostalgia prone they are? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a few. I think the best one is um, by these uh, Southampton researchers called the Southampton Nostalgia Scale. It's just six or seven items kind of asking about the, the frequency and intensity of, of these nostalgic experiences that people feel from day to day. Uh, but certainly, like, like a lot of um, psychological constructs like anxiety, uh, it can be both a trait. In other words, you're kind of a predisposition, which varies from person to person, as well as a state uh, where almost anybody could feel nostalgic at a particular setting, such as walking the halls of their high school or going uh, back to their uh, their university campus. Now, do, do we know how frequently people on average experience nostalgia? I think um, a few studies have suggested a few times a week. Okay. Uh, now, of course, it's, it's not a normal distribution. Some people right. are... Um, much more frequent. Other people might report, you know, just a couple times a month. Um, but almost everybody, I think it's uh, the vast majority of people do experience it at least occasionally. Do we know, uh, speaking of personality traits, do we know if there are other things that people uh, who experience nostalgia have in common? For instance, people who maybe experience it more often than others or more intensely than others, do they have similar personality traits? Uh, are there generational components? Uh, mood states? Uh, do we know anything about the characteristics that might sort of classify? That's a good question. Um, I don't think there's anything that really stands out. So for example, I could be wrong, but I, I don't recall strong correlations with any of the big five mm -hmm. uh, personality traits, for example. There may be sort of a small positive correlation with extroversion, okay. um, but that, yeah, that research is uh, sort of escaping me at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I think people who are higher in attachment avoidance um, okay. might experience it less. 
they certainly benefit from it less. So as we talk about the benefits at some point, um, kind of a related question is, are there is there anybody that doesn't really seem to extract some of these psychological benefits? And uh, almost everybody does, except for people who are pretty low in attachment um, or pretty high in attachment avoidance. Yeah. Now, when you say psychological benefits, what are you talking about there? Just a, a, that good feeling again, or is there something more, some larger benefit that we're we're getting? Yeah, from? yeah, it's a it's a lot more than feeling. Certainly, there is um, you know that sort of mood uh, component. Uh, like I said before, uh, sometimes there's positive and negative emotions, or typically there is. The more we rehearse, we probably rehearse and focus on the more positive elements as we are continually reconstructing our memories. Um, but also, as you know, we have this great psychological immune system where the negative events in life, even the really serious ones, we are able to extract meaning and life lessons and, uh, and just realize that we are, we're different people, uh, but we're sort of different people that uh, we got where we are today, even because of those negative experiences. So I think all of those converge um, to help uh, take away some of the, the strongest negative emotions from uh, at least some of our uh, more painful past. But uh, there are a number of states. In fact, uh, there are a couple papers on the motivational properties of nostalgia or how nostalgia is a resource for the future. So it's this interesting state that we're sort of drawing on our past and that helps us in the future. So I'll, I'll, I'll list a few of these. Mm -hmm. Um, I think two of the biggest benefits, um, and these tend to mediate other benefits, are social connectedness, feelings of social connectedness, okay. and feelings of uh, self-continuity. So social connectedness is, um, you know, this idea that we just feel like we have our people. We feel a higher sense of belonging. And, uh, and nostalgia actually can be triggered by negative states. So going back to that that story, I, I guess I didn't really get into the details of why people got it wrong for 400 years. They were looking at a correlation between loneliness and nostalgia or homesickness and nostalgia. And they were thinking that that was causal, that maybe nostalgia was the cause of these oh, negative Oh, they had the arrow emotions. backwards probably, didn't they? Exactly. It turns out it's backwards because nostalgia is triggered by negative states like loneliness or even boredom. And uh, and it helps to ameliorate, helps to kind of help us recover from those negative states. So you're uh -huh. feeling maybe a little lonely, isolated at a point in your life. You may be more likely to wax nostalgic about your college days or your graduate school days. That will increase your feelings of social connectedness and thereby reduce those feelings of, of loneliness. Now I'm starting to put it together. You know, I've mentioned that I am spending more and more time going down memory lane, more and more time listening to old country music songs, looking at uh, pictures of old toys, talking to my loved ones, my brother Andy, about these very same things. Earlier in this episode, we wax on and on about our favorite toys and food and things that we miss growing up. And, you know, I have to say, as I get older, I feel more of a pull to do that. And maybe that's because I'm so overwhelmed in my in my life. I almost said wife, little Freudian slip there. <laughs> so overwhelmed in my life with all of the things that are going on. Nothing bad, but definitely some anxiety there, some, some stress and anxiety. Yeah. 
and also yeah. the mortality uh, threat. You know, I'm, I'm right. very aware that at age 51 now, I'm closer and closer to the age my parents were when they passed away. So that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, nowadays uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, so much of life is still digitally mediated. It's online. Mm. We're not seeing people as much face to face. Now, certainly you can feel nostalgia through those. We, we did a study on nostalgia on Facebook and found that, that there are ways to uh, use Facebook um, to increase your feelings of nostalgia. But I think, yeah, often if we are just working alone in an office or, or in our homes, mm-hmm. that may spur us a little bit more uh, to, um, to wax nostalgic in order to kind of gain some of that social connection that we yeah. may have not be, been feeling. So you are speculating that it could be used one day, what, as a, as a treatment modality for some psychological distress or, I mean, it sounds to me like yeah, it, it already is quite adaptive and it seems to be um, a good coping strategy, right? But do you think yeah, this could, yeah, do you I, think this could scale? You know, that's, that's a good question. I think there may be some ongoing research. Uh, I believe there was one paper looking at, um, sort of older kind of retirement age, or maybe people in old age homes and kind of doing a sort of a nostalgic manipulation to reduce feelings of loneliness. Cause of course, if you have had your life uprooted or you've lost your spouse, mm-hmm. um, you're no longer living on your own. Um, you may sort of have some of those more negative feelings. And so I, I believe there's a paper out there that found the the benefits. Now, you know, it's not a panacea and it's not this enormous mm-hmm. effect size. I wouldn't say like, oh, this this is, let's replace all the treatments for depression with a Right, we're, we're not ready to throw out the SSRIs quite yet. Probably. But um, but yeah, I think certainly, uh, you know, there, there's few downsides to it. Uh, there's a number of other benefits and that um, some of these benefits happen through social connectedness or through self-continuity. So I like to think of these as some of the the biggest ones. I think meaning in life actually would, would be another one. But self-continuity, I think this is especially um, important in this day and age. Self-continuity is this idea that it's it's the same self sort of going through life. It's a more coherent uh, life narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, you, like me, you, you know, you, sometimes we go to one, we go to high school, then we go to college, then we go to another school for graduate school, perhaps. Uh, my first job was five years in Southern California, and uh, I went back there because I had a conference last weekend. And mm-hmm. again, I went back 24 years um, and uh, wax nostalgic with my former colleagues about starting this university. And so I think nostalgia helps us uh, think back and somehow make connections, maybe see um, how we sort of change and grow and evolve through time. And so we do get a little bit more of a coherent story. Um, you know, some days I think we we wake up and like, you know, who's the real Jeff? Will the real Jeff please mm-hmm. stand up? Yep. Was it the high school Jeff or the college Jeff? And, you know, life is too disjointed and, and the friendship groups are all different. Um, but I think nostalgia maybe helps um, smooth the transitions and understand uh, that we have this more coherent life journey as we go from stage to stage. So that that's self-continuity. Uh, that's another, uh, you know, almost always a, a, a nice outcome of uh, feeling nostalgic, engaging in nostalgic uh, revelry. Now, when I am taking that trip down memory lane and or being nostalgic, as you would call it, um, 
I know objectively, like if I'm being intellectually honest, I know that the time period, uh, the events surrounding my nostalgia are not all positive. Yet, I feel like that's exactly the opposite of the way I experience it. Are we somehow subtracting out the bad parts of this? And if so, could that maybe be to blame for why so many people, particularly people who are politically polarized, will often say, I long for the good old days, right? I want to make mm-hmm. America great again. Even though most of us are sitting there thinking, well, you know, when was it great? Uh, right. Yeah. No, in fact, we we did a, a paper on that, you know, that looking at that populism. And I and I think sometimes we we may think back fondly to a past that actually never was. And so it, it was we can have these memory biases on a personal level, but apparently we can have them on a on a national level, too. Um you know, you see in the news even today where a lot of people think the economy is in terrible shape mm. when uh, it's far from perfect. But if you look at things like, you know, the inflation rate having come down significantly, the unemployment rate is is uh, terrific, et cetera, growth, productivity are mm-hmm. up. So, yeah, it's it's I think it's we can make these inaccurate judgments depending on um, the the materials we're drawing from and if you know and those can be biased again if it's media bias or it can be just our own memory bias luckily when it comes to memory bias um you know usually that's more positive instead of more negative uh and so i think like like we talked about before you when you are simply thinking back you you know you're you're choosing what to think about and so i think we're naturally drawn to the, the more positive things um, or even the things that are, you know, positive and negative, but then you are um, maybe even dwelling on the life lessons of the negative or uh, thinking about the fun. I mean, I, you know, there are some specific events uh, from my college or grad school that, you know, I almost reflect back annually, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes I think I irritate my classmates because uh, I have this strange memory for for dates. And so I'll think, remember back on, you know, February 27th, uh, 25 years ago, we did this and I'll do this, you know, I'll send the same text a year later. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think the nice thing about those stories, and so this may be true of your discussions with your brother is there may be a little more, you know, bias in the sense of inaccuracy as as you're talking about um, those child events, you may be spinning some of the stories a little bit away from accuracy, but just more more fun and more entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that sometimes as I'm telling some of these stories uh, from my past uh, to entertain and and make a point to my class or with my friends, I, I may be a little more inaccurate, but um, but I'm I'm having fun with it. And so again, that just that leads to an increase in the positivity. Well, I must admit I have read a few papers by. Uh you and your lab partners anticipated nostalgia. You likened it to time travel. Could you talk a little bit about that paper? Yeah. So as you know, human beings are pretty unique in being able to be, think about the past and the future. Now that has enormous benefits. You know, we can plan for the future. Going to college, you know, revolves around 
um, making sacrifices for four or five years, you know, less income, um, but you're thinking ahead to, you know, more options, maybe higher income uh, as a result of your degree. So we engage in all this mental time travel. There's a lot of uh, uh, downsides um, when you're, if you are uh, just worried so much about the future, a lot of this anxiety or this regret about the past. Uh, and, you know, mindfulness is this, uh, um, almost seen as this panacea, like, well, we need to just be in the moment, be sort of less evaluative and engage in less time travel. I think that's absolutely true. Um, but at the same time, you know, this uh, thinking forward and thinking back can have lots of benefits too. So anticipated nostalgia is particularly complicated because it is uh, thinking ahead in order to think back. So it's almost like the the back to the future uh, of uh, of cognition in a way. Oh, wow. And so let me maybe elaborate with some examples. If you are in a, in a, a powerful moment, uh, uh, a holiday, a vacation, sometimes you are in the moment realizing this this is special. And I'm I'm going to think back on this and 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 want to enjoy it. So you may pay more attention uh, to the details. You may take pictures, things like that. Uh, my daughter, uh, thankfully, is used to the fact that I will take pictures. You know, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every vacation, um, and then I will I will make a book. You know, we we went to Paris and I did a little photo book. We went to London, I did a photo book. Um, Valentine's Day was yesterday. So we, you know, we did a selfie where we had some red clothing and stuff like that. Um, and so, so anticipated nostalgia is sort of thinking, yeah, I'm, this is a special time and it's, it's wonderful because it's like a, it's like you're drawing, you're drawing from the memory banks, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're able to extract out from the memory banks without a loss of principle. Um, to use a financial analogy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so one question we had as we were doing research on anticipated nostalgia was, well, would you could you actually be losing something about the present? In other words, you're, if you're less in the moment, are you savoring it less? Are you noticing less? Um, and it turns out that that does not seem to be the case. In fact, it was the opposite. In other words, people who had more of a sense of this anticipated nostalgia. So imagine a graduation. Mm -hmm. Some people are just going through it. Other people are, they're a little bit more taken by the, the momentousness of the event. And so, you know, they're looking around, taking the mental pictures, taking the, the actual pictures as well. Turns out the people who are feeling more anticipated nostalgia felt more savoring. And then in the future, they were actually more nostalgic about that event. And so they had kind of more material, so to speak, uh, with which to enjoy feeling nostalgic later. Uh, so yeah, so it's it's thinking ahead about thinking back. Interesting. That's an interesting concept. What about triggers? Um, I know that some of the work you do in your lab or have done um, involves evoking this feeling of nostalgia. Could you talk a mm -hmm. little bit about that? One in particular that interests me is the odor-induced, right, the scent-induced nostalgia. Personally, yeah. I'm not nostalgic um, as often for smells as I am the way food looks in an image. I, I seem to be more mm -hmm. visually inspired. And also, yeah. like I said, the, the old 
80s country music that reminds me of when my mom was alive and I was a kid. Um, talk about, you know, other, other sensory um, pathways, if you would. Yeah, there, there are a number of things that we have looked at. Uh, and yeah, we've broken down almost all of the senses. So I think the first paper was on music. You know, that's, that's particularly powerful. Uh, I wish I knew more about memory and music, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think we probably have tens of thousands of songs in our head. Oh, absolutely. We may not be able to, to bring them out of nothing, but if somebody starts the song, you know, we know the lyrics, the guitar line, the bass line, the percussion, you know, sometimes we have all of yeah. these things wrapped up together. Yeah. It doesn't take and much, it can, does it? Yeah. It can take us back. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can tell you a memory of Thomas Dolby's, uh, blinded by science when I was in the car with my high school classmate Brian first driving to a basketball game and he was singing that very loudly uh and there's a number of songs uh, uh the simple minds don't you forget about me yes. was playing as I was uh hauled off the bus by police officers in some rural part of Peru wow yeah if I would ever be seen again hence the the song seemed to fit so that, that's an 80s teenage anthem for sure yeah, exactly. I have a couple dozen of these songs. Like I remember this specific time and place. Um, and I, I love that song. You know, we, we, we don't really get satiated by some of our best songs. So I've, I can hear those songs hundreds of times and, and they still take me back. Uh, we often, we then pivoted to, I think the next one uh, that we looked at was the sense. Uh, I was able to get a bunch of these different vials of, um, you know, just kind of, uh, I forget what the term is. Um, essential oils type yes, things. Yes. And I think, I think my lab room still smell like pumpkin pie spice or something, <laughs> but yeah, we, we had a bunch of these and we had people, you know, sample them and, and found out that uh, many of them did elicit nostalgia. And then when they did feel nostalgic, they also felt more socially connected. They felt happier, et cetera. Um, and um, did it matter if they liked know, the odor or not? For instance, if someone didn't like pumpkin pie, were they still, did it still trigger positive sort of emotions? That's a that's a good question. I can't remember. I, yeah, I'm um, sure you've got that yeah. data. Right. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at that. Um, and certainly smells uh, do seem to be particularly tied to memories. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the brain experts will talk about the olfactory portion of the brain being sort of right, right in the front there. It's kind yeah. of a short trip from nose to brain. Yeah, no, no need um, to go through the thalamus or anything like that. Right. Um, but we also know that, that smell and taste are, are tied together, that mm -hmm. we can't enjoy coffee or chocolate um, as much if we don't have a sense of taste. So then that's another thing we looked at. And we looked at um, taste. We In this case, we tried to control things. You know, we can't bring pumpkin pies into the lab. Right. So we're li limited, right? Sometimes we'll just ask people to imagine the situation. Um, in this case, we use different flavored jelly beans, and that seemed to work. Mm -hmm. um, so we had some of that experimental control and then used a number of different tastes. Uh, and so the same, same kind of patterns of um, a number of psychological benefits, increased well-being and meaning in life, social connectedness for these, these tastes. Some work we have going on right now in my lab is uh, touch. So that was one of the few remaining senses left. And oh, wow. so we are, um, it typically, we're, when we've asked um, students are, you know, participants are usually college students. Mm. What, um, what comes to mind? It's uh, school supplies and toys. Yeah. Uh, so that goes back to maybe the first thing you said, 
um, whether it's Legos or GI Joe with Kung Fu grip, there's yes. certain things and what we might do. Um, so the, the final study might be actually finding some of these toys, uh, the toys that were appropriate for today's, you know, college age students when they were children sure and and have them actually touch it and the strong test would be you don't even look at it right you can't even see it right um, it's in the dark gonna, or inside a bag or something yeah right? you're going to reach into a bag and, and feel a lego and then we're going to ask you um what to report does. if that makes you nostalgic etc yeah. yeah so lots of senses but we've also looked at things like social media um i'm obsessed with um fiction reading fiction and so i um uh, one of my students did their master's thesis on reading a new book versus rereading an old book and oh, wow. rereading one of your favorite books actually does um, trigger nostalgia. And then again, people feel more socially connected. They feel higher well-being uh, as a result of reading that. And, you know, was, that was just a 15 minute induction. We just had people bring two books, a favorite book they, you know, reread and mm -hmm. then a book they haven't read yet. And then we randomly assign them to read one of those for 15 minutes. Maybe that's the problem with my undergraduates trying to get them to read the textbook for the first time, huh? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should just assign the same book four times. And then on the fourth time, they will finally have read it. <laughs> have you thought about the future of nostalgia? How social media, AI, virtual or augmented reality might sort of change things for you as a researcher, but also for me as just a layperson who likes to uh, feel nostalgic? That's a fascinating question. Uh, I know very little about AI, mm -hmm. um, but I can see two different pathways. On the one hand, we could continue down a path where we're kind of divorced from the past or divorced from reality. You know, I'm sort of thinking about that ready player one scenario where sure. we can live most of our lives in a computer game and not even be in touch with people face to face or not even you know interface with our our real environment mm -hmm. technology may be one of the best ways to help us um, get these sort of daily doses of nostalgia and i do recommend it you know based on what we know and the, and the benefits not just the emotional benefits but these other states um you know i have a um a, a reminder set on Facebook to like, look at all the things I posted on this day, you know, previous years. So I've been on Facebook for 14 years. And mm -hmm. so I can look back and see what I did. And so most days I will go back and, uh, and enjoy those memories and quite often share some with my daughter, especially if they're about her, you yeah. know, as a toddler or something. Um, and then um, I have a Google phone. And so Google photos probably five times a day, just, um, similarly shows me this is what you were doing on this day but it also just pick random um photos that i've highlighted or vacations or something like that and so i i click on it and i get 30 seconds of enjoying you know that trip the, to curacao with my friend scott or something like that and so i think uh i think in many ways it, this could be used and so sometimes when i give talks or teach on this and then i switch to a more applied uh perspective at the end, I'll talk about, you know, giving yourself some some regular, even daily um, uh, doses of nostalgia. On the other hand, because of what we know about nostalgia, I can see people using virtual reality and maybe AI enhanced virtual reality to actually experience nostalgia even more powerfully. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine somebody curating pictures from college, pictures from their high school, 
my old high school has been torn down, but there's mm-hmm. got to be lots of pictures in there. Absolutely. And fe- you could f- maybe feed those in and, and essentially I, I can construct the old Concord Carlisle High School from these pictures and then I can walk those halls. Uh, but then as we were saying, I think you could really supercharge that via um, sort of this virtual reality, AI enhanced, you know, so you could one day maybe, uh, you know, walk your high school, walk your college, and maybe populate it with people, with voices and faces. Music, uh, art, yeah. I can see the graffiti on the lockers now, right? Yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah, I mean, you can go back and open your locker using the same combination. You know, we may have that. Of course, I don't know if I'd remember the combination, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, they, uh, my daughter had some junior high orientation. They were saying, you know, some of the, some kids get really nervous about just how to use that combination yes, lock. And yes. I, I thought, well, yeah, I guess that's not as common as it used to no, be. No, you might as well be asking but, them to do um, cursive. Right, right. <clears throat> but yeah, I can't wait till Hollywood uh, tackles this because, you know, you could almost theoretically make, make personalized movies, right? You could mm-hmm. – uh, um, pay for somebody to give you your own rom-com right that 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 lost love that that missed opportunity uh in high school well you know now i can go back and she'll actually be interested in me and and you could you could make an your your own personal rom-com theoretically i guess uh but on the flip side you could you could turn your high school you know it means for some of us our high school days were a, a horror movie already but sure. you could actually you know you could turn your high school life into a a horror movie, an adventure movie, yeah. uh, you know, the sky's the limit. Perhaps even right rewrite the script, inputs. make yourself the uh, the quarterback of the football team, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I, make I the, make the, the popular people less. And, yeah. Uh, I want to edge out Chris and Paul, the guys that were at the top of my class. Absolutely, that'd be awesome. <laughs> you could do so much stuff. You know, maybe I would, yeah, not be so shy, and I'd actually go to prom. Yeah. Um, but I was too shy to actually ask a girl uh, to the prom. So yeah, let, let's, let's give it a shot and uh, sell it to Hollywood. Yeah. I like that idea. <laughs> I, what do you know about, um, nostalgia and giving if anything? Well, yeah. Um, there, there are some links between nostalgia and prosociality. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think people have especially have, have looked at, uh, financial giving. That's a nice objective behavioral, uh, measure. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, Actually, I did a couple studies uh, in this area. Uh, it was doubly nostalgic for me because the two universities uh, where I uh, I did the research were uh, my two alma maters, Dartmouth College for undergraduate and then UNC Chapel Hill. So I was able to find uh, um, generous alums to do surveys. Uh, so we did two different studies. And what we found across both studies was that, yes, people who were higher in nostalgia did indeed just engage in a number of different ways with their universities. So if they were higher in in what we called university nostalgia, they were more likely to attend reunions. They were more likely to attend social events um, with um, sort of non-reunion times, go go back to their university. They were more likely to interact with fellow alums. uh, And they were more likely to give both the frequency and the size of donations to the alma mater were correlated with um, feelings of, of nostalgia. Uh, and so what you were saying, absolutely, uh, it's that's not there, but that's what those reunions are. That's what the you know short videos when the, the schools will send out a video of, um, I think I recently got 
um, one from Dartmouth where you know, the snow was falling and yes. maybe a winter carnival happens. And so, you know, it just takes you back to the time when you experienced that and, and then you open up your wallet. Absolutely. Well, um, I know that you've shared with me off the air um, one story about how nostalgia has uh, changed your life and, and will soon perhaps change someone else's. Uh, would you like to share that story for my audience? Yeah, this is a, this is a strange one that's coming up in just a few days for me. Um, and, you know, as we know, behavior is multiply caused and, you know, often we don't know ultimately why we do things. So I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to do something uh, in six days and um, there's a number of reasons for it, but I can tell you definitively that if I weren't personally nostalgic, especially nostalgic for my my undergrad days at Dartmouth College, uh, I wouldn't be doing this. So I am uh, I'm donating a kidney and this is a so-called altruistic donation. It's I don't know the person. Oh my. I know that it's a, a woman in New York City um, and that um, six previous matches uh, failed. Uh, in other words, they I think they they take a bunch of my blood um, samples and just get a sense of whether or not um, my kidney would be compatible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, so it's been a, a sort of a two year journey to where I got to this, this point where I'm, you know, voluntarily giving up an organ. Um, certainly, you know, some of the, the logistics and details are important to the fact that you really don't need two kidneys. It's not going to shorten my lifespan. Um, I, I don't think there'll be any limitations on, on my life. Uh, and so just, just, I mean, the math, it was compelling for me, you know, that it might double or triple the lifespan of the recipient. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I thought that was worth it. Um, but, you know, I think maybe for me, this, this uh, dive into nostalgia, both personally and professionally, you know, that is associated with pro-sociality. And so I think maybe that has, has pushed me um, slowly, uh, sometimes reluctantly towards trying to be more pro-social. But this specific kidney thing uh, came about because uh, of a, another Dartmouth a college uh, undergrad who became a social psychologist. Uh, we both were inspired to get into the field um, by Professor Bob Kleck, who was this wonderful lecturer, this very warm man. And um, But this other researcher was 11 years after me, so we, we didn't overlap at all. Mm -hmm. uh, her name is Ab Abigail Marsh, and Abby is a professor at Georgetown University. So I found out about her, and just because of the Dartmouth connection, I thought, well, maybe she'll come down to VCU in Richmond, 120 miles away, and, and give a talk. And she did about 10 years ago. So uh, so that started a friendship. Uh, I don't know her terribly well, um, but uh, she gave another talk uh, during the pandemic for us. And, uh, and that talk was about her, her more recent research um, on um, altruistic kidney donors. And so she did this very creative work involving traditional social psychology methods, as well as neuroimaging. And she found that these uh, extraordinary altruists, as she called them, were um, very high in empathy. They were very sensitive to fearful faces and responsive to them. And they, they don't make the sharp distinctions that most of us do in terms of helping family members and then close friends and then strangers, you know, maybe if it's if it's not costly. For them, that line is much is much flatter. They really they will say, well, you know, would you give a, a 
a kidney to save the life of your spouse. Well, mm. yes. What about a cousin? Well, yeah, probably. What about this? And they'll just keep going for them. They just don't see the difference. One of the most fascinating aspects of that is that she found a link to psychopathy. And essentially, these people were at the opposite end uh, on, on psychopathy, um, where people who are high in psychopathy, very devoid of, of empathy, very manipulative, um, and don't even... Um, identify or recognize fearful faces very quickly or very accurately. Uh, and so she was able to sort of make this, this strong link there. So I thought about that and I thought, you know, I'm not one of these maybe extraordinary altruists by nature, but maybe with an effort of will, I can, I can pretend like I am, you know, I can enact some behavior. So kind of long story short, I, I inquired about my own University, Virginia Commonwealth University has this transplant center. They do 500 transplants a year, including about 300 kidneys. Um, a lot of those are non-living donors. And among the living donors, it's still, I think it's maybe less than 5% are, are so-called altruistic donors. So um, I passed a lot of the tests. You know, I had to wear blood pressure monitor for 24 hours and, and lots of blood samples. Um, I collected my urine for 24 hours. Uh, they didn't want it, but I just thought it'd be fun, actually. <laughs> nice. So uh, so I went through all these things. And um, and then, yeah, they started the process of matching me up. And often they have these very long chains, you know, so they, because altruistic donations are rare, the typical thing is that, you know, somebody needs a kidney. Um, they can't find a match among their friends or family, but there's a match in, you know, some other town. Sure. Um, and then, you know, so that person's, you know, one person's husband donates to somebody else uh, in another town, and then that person's, um, you know, sister then donates to the other person. Does that make sense? Right, so right. Yeah. That's the simple chain involving just four people. But sometimes they have very long chains involving more than a dozen people. Oh, wow. Um, the nice thing about these altruistic donations is it can start a new chain and allow a lot of flexibility. Um so I found out, like literally two days ago, I found out that, um, yeah, a woman in New York City is going to receive my kidney. Her husband's going to donate to somebody in Richmond. And then there's one more set of the chain. So there's going to be three three recipients are going to get kidneys. Um, and six of us uh, in two uh, cities are involved. And so it's this unusual uh, six-person chain, or I kind of like the word family. Um, I hope we'll get a chance to talk to you know someday, maybe even meet each other in person someday. Um, that'll presumably happen after after all these surgeries. But um, yeah, I got to the point where um, it it didn't it doesn't really feel like a sacrifice. It 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 feels like a kind of a privilege to be able um, to do that. And so uh, that I you know if I didn't have such nostalgia for Dartmouth. If I didn't just reach out to fellow Dartmouth alums, assuming they will want to talk to me or come speak uh, at my school, I, I wouldn't wouldn't be here today. That's absolutely fantastic. What a great story. And Dr. Green, what a great interview this has been. Uh, what an interesting career you've had and what good work you're doing, man. I, I know my audience is going to be fascinated by it. I do thank you for your time. Again, Dr. Green is the... Director of Social Psychology's PhD program at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And he's been kind enough to spend an hour with us this morning talking about his past, present, and future research into the area of nostalgia. Dr. Green, thank you for your time, man. 
Thanks. This was great fun. Yeah. So we